wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bleeding Daylight. You'll find more episodes and links to connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the website bleedingdaylight.net. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider sharing episodes with others. Our guest today gives us an insight into her life with stories of near tragedy, of hope and a little about her own popular podcast. We'll explore the connection between beauty and brokenness and talk about the practice of Sabbath. I know you're going to love it. Amber Callum is a fearlessly authentic podcaster, homeschool mum and speaker. She's the host of Grace Enough, a podcast designed to encourage her listeners in their life and faith. She's normally the one inviting others to share some of their story, but today we have the honor of delving into her own story. Amber, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for having me, Rodney. I'm glad to be here. I do want to delve into a few different areas of your life today, but first of all, tell me who I would meet if I dropped in to visit you at your home. (laughs) Well, maybe not the person you would meet if you were a fly on the wall, right? (laughs) My kids tonight, (laughs) my oldest son said, I told my teacher, Mrs. Heinrich, that you did yell at us when you got upset. And she said, no way your mom yells. And he started laughing. (laughs) So I thought that was a comical story. But um, no, if you were to show up here, I am a mom, like you said, of three. I have my kids at home three days a week, and then they're in school two days a week. So we do a hybrid type model school. So you would find us sitting around the table on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, Honestly, I don't have to do that much with them, but my kindergartner is the one that I mostly am involved with in their schooling. And then on Monday and Wednesday, I'm usually working on podcasting type things. I love to really pour in probably a lot like you, like digging into the lives of people is something I'm really passionate about. So I actually spend a lot of time preparing and researching different guests that I'm going to have on the show. And then my husband, Sam, and I, we've been together for 15 years now. We have eight chickens and a dog. And so really, you'd probably either see me sitting and reading or running around doing all the mom things. (laughs) I'm I'm always interested in, in what brings a person to the point that they're at in life. So maybe you can give me a bit of an understanding of growing up, what life was like, and, and what led you to this point. Yeah. So I grew up in a small eastern Kentucky town. And for those of you who don't know much about Kentucky, the eastern half is the Appalachian Mountains. Very much coal mining was the type of industry that people were in. My family wasn't in um, coal mining, but very culturally Christian. A lot of people who've lived there, you know, for generations. And I didn't grow up in a family that was I would say we were culturally Christian, like we went to church sometimes, but not all the time. I lived there until I was starting college, and then I only moved two hours away and went to the University of Kentucky, which is where 
the Lord Jesus really got a hold of my heart there after running for years and years in rebellion. I stayed there for about 10 years. I graduated with a physical therapy degree, and so I practiced physical therapy for five years and met my husband during that time. Then my world changed when his job changed and we picked up and moved to Florida. And so that was a really difficult time in my life, just all the transition going from really strong roots where I grew up and being close to my family to being far away. And so we lived there for eight years. All three of my kids were born in Tampa. And when my youngest was nine months old, we picked up and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. So that is where we find ourselves now, like I said, homeschooling, serving in our church, and then my husband is running a business here. So that's kind of an overview about how we at least got to the area we're in. And of course, life wasn't always simple. You mentioned that you grew up in this culturally Christian home with sort of a bit of a mental ascent towards things of faith and occasionally visiting church. You didn't actually really come to to full faith until you were in your university years, even though in your younger years, you, you did make some kind of commitment. But there were other things that happened during that childhood. There were near tragedies. There were things that Mm -hmm. that were happening along the way that no doubt would have affected you as you went further into life. Yes, absolutely. So when I was in fifth grade, my childhood home burnt to the ground. And so it's hard sometimes to even remember to put pour that out as a part of my story because it feels so long ago and I'm so far removed from it that people have actually even asked me, like, have you ever, you know, been counseled through that? Like, do you think that had any impact on you? And so this home was a home that my parents built from the ground up. I was just laying on the couch one morning, heard just a large explosion and the door to our garage flew open and a couple of pictures fell off the wall. And I remember jumping up off the couch as a 10-year-old girl and running around and looking outside and the whole side of our garage was on fire. Like the wall right by where I had been lying was on fire. And so I yelled for my dad and he came and obviously immediately began taking measures to try to get the flames out. And my mom and I ran outside. We ran across the street, you know, calling the fire department. They could not save it. The entire home built to the ground. And I remember so much of my dad was such a supportive dad, a, a wonderful dad, a playful dad. You know, at that at that time in my life, like he was my superhero. And that was the first time I really remember seeing his humanity and just thinking like, wow, he was so sad and so tired and so defeated. And so I do think that really played a huge role in my life from that point forward, even though I don't think that I recognized it until I became an adult, just how much that impacted my family. I am interested in that fire because as a 10-year-old, you would have those things that bring you security within your home. What was it like losing all those things and suddenly finding yourself homeless? I will say the most wonderful thing about where I grew up is that my grandparents, both sets, literally lived within a few miles. And so I had a very safe home, very 
much supported in the community. My parents, like I said, had grown up there. It was really, really scary. But that same night that it happened, we started staying with my grandparents. And I remember people from our school coming and dropping off bags full of clothes for my sister and I to have something to wear. And I remember going to a small department store and getting, you know, new underwear and a toothbrush and all of these things. But what I don't recall as vividly is, you know, the the impact it must have had on my parents. Now, as a 42-year-old mom, I can look back with much more compassion and empathy than what I could at that time. But I just imagine the amount of stress. And I do think as life went on, that stress definitely continued to play out because here they are homeless. They're trying to settle a home. They're trying to figure out, are they going to build again? Where do you live? What do you do with your children? And so while I still felt super safe and I missed my quote unquote things, I don't think that I felt the loss nearly as much as they did because I still was super secure with my family and my friends around. And being a parent, you would know what it's like to want to provide and protect your children. So I guess that's what's going through your mind now as well, that here are your parents. They've not just lost everything, but these children that they wanted to provide for and protect, suddenly they they can't do that in the same way. It must have been incredibly difficult for them. Yeah, I think I, I think back to my parents in so many ways, like I said now, and you know, the crazy thing is, Rodney, um, and sometimes I have a hard time telling this part of my story because it almost just seems unreal, but we had eventually moved into a rental home and we, I can't even remember how long we had lived there, but literally the rental home was so large and we had no furniture. So we had like two bedroom suits and a couple of couches that my grandparents had given us. And the house was so big that I, my parents bought me for my birthday a gymnastics mat. And I would do round off back handsprings through the house because there was like nothing in it. We lived there for a short time. And in April of that year, that house burned to the ground as well. And that I remember at that time thinking, oh my gosh, like, are people going to think that we did this? What is happening to us? What in the world? And so that was a whole different situation because we had absolutely zero attachment to that house. We had no renter's insurance. We walked away completely scot-free, like nobody was in the home. It was a work day and it was a really old house that no one had lived in. And so some electrical stuff happened. But I remember a different type of feeling at that point, like, oh my gosh, what are people going to think about us? And I'm sure it also plays on your mind as, is there any such thing as security and trying to find security? A lot of us, even though we know it could be lost at any moment, we might find our security in our home and those things that are familiar to us. I guess going forward, did it play in your mind, what if this happens again? Yeah, I mean... I definitely developed a very strong fear of fire. I remember like if I would smell it, even once I got married, if we would have the windows up in our home, I would just start panicking. And I can also remember, like I said, I grew up in the mountains and we were living in another rental home at this point. 
And there was some forest fires that were starting to kind of creep down closer to our home. And I can remember at that time just feeling really, really panicky. But I mean, to shift the story just a little bit, I can also see where from the outside looking in, my family was safe. I still felt a strong sense of security because of the support that I had. But Just because things look really good from the outside doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going on on the inside. And so it's not like I grew up in a home that was perfect. No one does. But there was still a lot of explosive things going on inside my home. And as I got older, that kind of took on a life of its own more and more between my mother and I. People can experience trauma And it doesn't have to look like the absolute train wreck story on the outside that we're so often used to hearing. It must have been difficult knowing that those are the years, the formative years, when we actually find our way in the world. And and these are troublesome years, not in the way that we hear in some families, but there are enough incidents. And even when you were 15, I know that there was an incident that, that again rocked your world. Tell me about that. This one's quite a bit harder, but... I was a part of a choir at my school, and it was our Christmas concert, and I was a sophomore in high school. My sister was a freshman in college, but she had been invited back along with all the other alumni to participate in this concert. And so we're getting ready at our house, and me um, and my dad are very much more like, we want to be on time. We're very much like, what's taking so long? Come on, what are you doing in there? And my sister and my mom are much more like, hey, you know, whatever, it's not a big deal. I was throwing a fit over it and, you know, acting like a big baby. And my dad finally said, come on, I'll take you to the concert. I'll come back and get your mom and your sister can come when she's ready. So we got in the car. It was a really cold evening. It was raining really hard. I remember my dad dropped me off at the church and, you know, I gave him a kiss and said, I'll see you in a bit. And that was that. My sister came in a little bit later And we were warming up, preparing for this concert when I saw my mom come in and she said, we need to go. Your dad has been in a really bad accident. He's at the hospital and I don't know exactly what's going on. And so, of course, the panic sets in, but we rushed out of the church and I walked into the ICU and I saw my dad lying on the bed. He was very bloody. He was broken. He was only breathing because of a ventilator at this point. I remember lifting up the sheet and just gasping, honestly, because his legs were not legs. They were broken in a million different pieces. And so at that point, we were not sure if he was going to survive. And I remember him being life flighted off of, um, helicopter pad into the air and very much thinking, will I see him alive again? And it was the scariest moment of my life because my dad is still really my hero. And that kind of tells a little bit of the story, but he was just my rock. He was my person. And so that evening definitely shaped me in a lot of ways that I'm sure I still don't even realize. And at the time, there's just this massive concern for your dad. 
but as emotions start to swirl around, were there times when you started to almost blame yourself? If only I hadn't rushed and and Dad hadn't said he'll take two trips to the church that night. Was there any of that going through your mind? Oh, absolutely. In frustration, there were some other people in my life who went towards that a little bit and said that same thing. And so there was a lot of guilt. But I also remember this. Two weeks earlier, I had knelt at the altar of my small church, and there's this little wooden carving of the face of Christ with the crown of thorns on his head and one tear dropping out of his eye, carved like up on the altar at our church. And I can so vividly remember looking at it, and I had knelt at the altar, and I had asked Jesus to save my dad's life no matter what it took. And so that night when he boarded that life flight to a larger hospital, and he ends up undergoing this eight-hour surgery, and we're just really uncertain what's going to happen, I remember begging God. And I can't say at this point I had like this super strong relationship with God, even though I was begging him to save my dad. That night, I just remember begging, 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 like, God, do not take my daddy. And so I knew that he had not accepted Christ into his life at this point. But I also know that a lot of people pray these prayers and they don't get the answers that I got, right? But I was so fearful that night. And I remember feeling a lot of guilt, like, why did I just have to push him to go? Why couldn't I have just waited? I'm always impatient. Why am I like this? And so, yeah, there was a lot of things going on there. I want to jump ahead a bit at the moment. You mentioned that you had this baby kind of faith back in those years, Mm -hmm. and part of that was this pleading for your dad to come to know the Lord, and the the good news is that that actually happened, Mm -hmm. that God answered that prayer, and that must have just been an amazing sense within you that God does answer prayer, even when I'm not in full relationship. But then we jump forward. You mentioned that You spent a lot of your teenage years in rebellion, but then came those years where you actually came to understand who Jesus really was and enter into a fuller relationship with him. What was the catalyst for that? What actually brought you to that place of making faith the priority in life? Yeah, I mean, I had been on and off one of those people, like I said, in my teenage years, very, very rebellious in all the ways. I mean, all the ways. If you can think of it, I probably did it. Intermixed with that still would be moments when I would find myself listening to my CD player, this one CD that was a Christian album that I'd had. I don't even remember how I got it, but I would find myself listening to it and praying. I would find myself at times reading the Bible or taking my Bible in my backpack to school. So the Lord was always pursuing me. Like there was definitely this pursuit of my heart all along. And so I was, you know, a teenager in a relationship. I had a a pretty severe, uh, maybe not severe. I had a breakup. It felt severe when I was 18 years old. (laughs) And I went to the University of Kentucky. I started going to college ministry to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I met some friends there and I kept feeling like drawn to go back there, even though I didn't have really good friends there. One evening, I walked through the doors at FCA, and I had this overwhelming sense 
of like something is going to happen. I know that sounds so cliche, but it was a it was a very strange evening. And that night, a gentleman got up and spoke. I don't even know what his name is, but he was talking about, you know, Jesus making people fishers of men. He was talking about Peter. And I honestly don't even remember all the details, but I remember that night just saying, okay, I'm done with this. I don't want to be walking in this direction anymore. I don't want to keep on this path that I'm on. Lord, I really want to follow you. Like, Jesus, I want to be all in. And so that was really the catalyst that night. I'd love to say that from that point forward, you know, I never made any mistakes and all of that, but that's not the case. But I would say that God really used college ministry to draw me to himself in a way that I'd never been drawn before. You mentioned that things didn't go right all the time after that. And we know that that's just the journey of life, that it has its ups and downs and we don't always get it right. But there came this time when you you started a family and I guess that brought its own challenges along the way. But I guess it also brought some incredible times for you. And to see three young children come from that marriage must have been amazing for you. It was, but it was hard. I often say, like, this is the way that beauty and brokenness dance with one another. And this is the way that so often we have to feel that only happiness can exist. But the reality is, is that happiness and sadness exist together. That's part of life. Joy and grief, they exist together. Beauty and brokenness, they exist together. It's not like you can only be experiencing one thing, one emotion at a time. And so when Bennett was born, who is my oldest child, he was very colicky, did not sleep well, and I was basically a train wreck. But as time passed and we kind of got into a little bit of a rhythm, things were good and I was happy and I loved him and he started sleeping better. And so it was, you know, one of those things where, oh, it's so it's so fun to watch them like learn to make sounds and do all that. And then on the other hand, I was kind of grieving my previous life too, like sad that I couldn't just go and do all the things that I could do before. And then when my daughter came along, That was a lot of fun, too, because it was a whole, it was like having a whole different type of child. Now I have a little girl. But I can remember with my second born, she was about nine months and just sitting in the floor crying and thinking, I am not okay. The hormones should be gone by now. And I am not okay. And that kind of started a journey for me for realizing that, yes, I'm experiencing postpartum depression But honestly, Rodney, it has probably taken until the last three years of my life to realize it was okay to be happy during that time and still be experiencing depression. And I think all too often, we act like one can't exist without the other. And I just don't believe that's true. So you still found times to have those moments of of happiness amongst that. But was it as if you weren't even giving yourself a license to feel that happiness? Yes. Again, like I was saying earlier, I am one of those types of people where, honestly, from the outside, most people would think that I just have it completely together. Now, I am a very open and honest person, so my closest friends knew that was not true. But what would happen is it wasn't a depression where I was just in darkness all the time. And that certainly does happen. And you can't talk people out of that. That is a different level 
that's going on psychologically. But for me, it could be I had the greatest morning out with my kids at the park with dear friends. We played, the kids napped well, and I would be so happy and enjoy it. And then an hour later, I would just be like weeping on the floor. It's almost hard to describe. Like I just knew something was not right, but then there's another level of you can know something's not right, and then you have to get to the point where you can actually admit it and let someone else offer assistance to you. There must have been a sense in that when you're having these great times and then it all falls apart again, Mm -hmm. there must have been this feeling that this is never going to lift. Absolutely. And that is part of depression. Part of it is in your mind, you're just thinking all the time, things will never be okay again. Look, my life is great. I mean, what could I be sad about? I have at this point, two healthy children. I have a husband who is an amazing man who not only works for our family, but wants to come home and spend time with us, enjoys us. I live in the you know sunny state of Florida. I have in-laws around who are very much loving and helpful. Why in the world do I feel like this? I'm walking with Christ. I'm praying. I'm doing all the things. And so you can start thinking, this will just never go away. This will just never go away. And so you kind of get in this little bit of a a rat race of driving yourself a little bit deeper. And there must have also been that sense as you contemplate all the good that surrounds you. I'm in a great place. There must have been this this whispering in your ear of, well, you're broken and it's just never going to get better. That must have been hard to overcome. Yeah, and that was the point where I still to this day really thank God that we had some really dear friends who, before we had moved to Tampa, the wife had actually tried to take her life. And so she was well beyond that by the time I met her, but they were close friends of ours. And my husband actually reached out to her husband and just said, what do I need to do? And that is when my husband, Sam, came home and said, okay, you know, you've got to see somebody. And I had been in counseling in the past, not because of depression, but just dealing with some things, some difficulties that I have with my mother, some relationship issues. So I knew at this point he wasn't really talking about counseling as much as he was talking about, I think you need to go and get some medication. I can look back now and see the pride and the resistance in that because, you know, I didn't want people to really know. Like the only one who really knew how bad it was, was my husband. And that's because he lived with me. And to be honest with you, I don't even think he knew how bad it was because he wasn't in my head. But God did use those friends really to speak life into my husband, who he was someone that I could hear from. And so I did end up going to see a psychiatrist and getting on medication and It took a while for that stigma for me to die, but now I feel very, very strongly about speaking out and saying, no, you absolutely can be surrendered to Christ and love him and still need medication for a mental illness you may be experiencing. One of the other areas of your life that I'm really interested in finding out more about is the whole idea of Sabbath, which we see right throughout both Old and New Testament in Scripture, and yet we so rarely see people that fully understand Sabbath and fully enter into it. 
What was the catalyst for you in saying this is something that we want for our family? Oh, I love that you asked this question um, because it has become something that's really dear to us. The beginning of 2019, oh no, it might have been in the beginning of 2020 is when we first started practicing a regular Sabbath. And really what led to it, Rodney, is I had been learning a lot more about an organization called Family Teams. And I was very interested in this certain family that really practices like a Shabbat dinner on Friday evenings. And as they began talking through the reason why they held this time dear, it just really, really began to speak to my heart in the sense of, wow, why are we spinning out of control in our lives? What is it about the culture that I live in to where we literally cannot even take a few hours and just say, I'm doing nothing? So that's kind of what started it. But then as I began to read more and more and more about Sabbath, what I realized is just how much it requires a full-on trust of God to provide. Because we're so busy, we have so many things going on. In the West, we're working 40 hours a week at minimum. So to take a whole day off just seemed outlandish to us. So we started, and it's what we still do, from a Friday evening around five or six, depending upon when my husband gets home, we kick off a Shabbat dinner. And one of the biggest reasons, it's not a traditional Shabbat dinner where we're having the exact same foods or anything like that. But we do light candles. We do bless both the boys and the girls in our family. We do read a couple scripture passages just focusing on the reason why we should be practicing Sabbath. And so that's the traditional part of it. And so we kick it off around five or six, and then we just go until noon the next day, mainly to get in more of a practice of slowing down and saying, this time is important. God is not only the God of the Sabbath, He's the God of Saturday, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And He will provide for us, He will meet our needs. And then it's also a wonderful time to connect with your family. Like every Friday night now, my kids, if we plan something else, they're like, no, we don't want to do that. It's our time at home. And so it's really a wonderful time to just prioritize your family. And so those are the biggest reasons we started doing Sabbath and to help my husband take a break from work. I know that there are very spiritual reasons behind the Sabbath, that time for rest. It's time to connect with family. It's time to connect with God. But personally, what have been the the greatest benefits that you've seen from setting this time aside? The first thing is the amount of quality time that we spend with our children on a Friday evening just from like 5.30 until 8. So after we eat our meal, we always play games together, or it may be we're going to work a puzzle, or it may be tonight we've chosen that we're going to watch a movie together. And so it's precious times that we're getting with our kids Um, That's more intentional because as your kids get older and they begin having different activities, wanting to go to different places for, you know, to spend the night and so on and so forth, 
if you don't have a rhythm and a routine in place, it's really, really hard to start it once they get to a certain age. So that's what I would say is the first biggest benefit that we've seen. The other thing is my husband and I have learned like the different things that recharge our own souls. You know, resting doesn't always mean that you're just sitting on the couch doing nothing. One of my favorite books is called Sacred Rest by Dr. Sandra Dalton. And she actually describes nine types of rest. So for example, rest for me can be going to dinner or lunch with two of my closest girlfriends and having intentional deep conversation. I walk away from that and I am filled up. Like my cup is overflowing. But if I had to go to a lunch with just a whole group of women that I barely know, that is not rest for me. It's a little bit soul-sucking for me, right? What are the things that bring rest to our souls that help us connect to God? Taking a walk in nature is something that is very, very restful for me. For my husband, it's playing disc golf. It's woodworking. Those things are restful for him. One-on-one time with our children. And so before we started the practice of Sabbath, we really didn't realize or we hadn't identified what really brings rest to our souls. So those are just two things that are two benefits that I would say we've experienced. I can imagine people listening at the moment and there's two thoughts running through their minds simultaneously. One is, oh, that would be so good to have that time set aside. But the other thought is, but we couldn't make it work in our busy schedule. If someone is thinking that, where do they start to even explore these possibilities? Well, I encourage people, the first thing to do is to pick out just a three or four hour window to where you think that you could have what you know we'll call a special meal. So it doesn't have to be an elaborate meal. That's not what I mean. But getting in the routine of just saying, okay, Friday nights a lot of times actually work better for people than to try to Sabbath on a Sunday, to be honest with you. We tried to work that out and it just didn't work well. But if you can pick one night and say, okay, I'm going to make just this dinner time a little bit more special. So things that we do, because you want to set the time apart. And so you got to start small a lot of times. We kind of turn everything off at that point. We have the candles on the table. I have plates that we only use for Shabbat. And it's not fancy plates. It's just the kids know, okay, it's time to settle in. This is what we're doing. The kids get a drink they don't typically get, you know, maybe chocolate milk or something like that. And then go ahead and decide, like, is there a passage that I want to read? We light the candles because Christ is the light of the world. That is also a very Jewish tradition. Obviously, they're not saying Christ is the light of the world, but they're waiting for the Messiah. And so start there, and it's going to feel really, really awkward at first. But all things feel awkward until you do them a couple of times. Now my kids will sing. (laughs) They'll say the Arianic blessing in Hebrew in front of people now. And I used to be embarrassed to do that. Now they don't even care to do it. So that is where I say start. And then slowly try to add a little bit more time. And listen, you are not going to like it at first. 
You are not going to just wake up on Saturday morning and say, okay, I'm going to take an hour of Sabbath. It's just going to be great. And you're going to meet with the Lord and, oh, you're going to be so fulfilled. No, because it's outside of what you're used to. And Jeremy Pryor, who is a family team, he said, you may even feel a little bit depressed after the first couple of times you've done it because you're so used to just going, 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 going that you don't know how to slow your mind down. And so you kind of have to prepare for that. For us, like I know I need to get my laundry and things started on Friday. So those types of things, what were the things you used to do on if you decide to do Saturday morning, or maybe it's Wednesday evening, or maybe you're in ministry and you have Mondays off? What are the things you typically do during those times that you could now do earlier in the week through just some preparation? And so I think that's the best place to just get started. And then, of course, I have an episode about it on Grace Enough that goes into a lot more detail where my husband and I both talk about it. You mentioned Grace Enough, and and we've looked at a whole range of issues throughout your life, and we haven't really gone super deep on any of them because I want people to be able to listen in to to Grace Enough and, and find a whole lot more about you, and I'm sure that many will. But let's touch on that podcast. What was the the start of that for you? What drew you towards this idea of podcasting? Yeah, so I love to connect with women. I think that probably a lot of Christian women feel similarly. Several years ago, I think it was probably 2018, I was at home with all three kids. At this point, my youngest still was not in school. And I just remember thinking, what could I do that would allow me to connect with women but still be at home? My husband and I kind of started tossing around podcasting a little bit and You know, I said, I probably really would love that. And then I went to a women's tea. This woman who was speaking was talking about Ruth and Naomi, but she kind of spun it a little bit differently and just talked about what it would be like if your life is kind of in this waiting season that definitely was taking place during um, the lives of Ruth and Naomi. Like, what would it look like to dream again? You know, what would it look like if you just, nothing was in the way, what would you be doing? But then not only is nothing in the way, what dream do you have that you could maybe start taking small steps toward now? And I remember that kind of being the catalyst for me to say, you know what? I think I could do this podcasting thing, and I think I would love it. And I think that it would give me a little bit of purpose outside of just parenting. And it'll be fun to learn something new. I love to learn something new. I kind of jumped in with both feet. That's what I do. I sit down with people just like you, Rodney, and have conversations like we're having, digging in a a little bit more into sometimes some hard things about Christianity that maybe people don't want to talk about. So that's kind of how I got here. And what I love about it is, as well as the fact that you are very professional and very good at what you do, is the fact that you do have just those everyday people that you have on the podcast talking about everyday stuff. But you've also had the opportunity to have some people that would be more household names that are able to come in and be part of that sort of conversation too. Who are some of the people that you've had opportunity to have on the podcast? 
Oh my goodness, Ronnie, isn't that the fun part? Like you start with, you're just talking to people from all walks of life and you're talking from people who quote unquote, have this huge platform and some that have just a small platform, yet their lives have really been transformed in some way by God. And it's really fascinating. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had John Eldridge on the show, which was just an absolute wonderful opportunity for me because he just speaks straight to the heart, which is such a beautiful thing. But John Eldridge, Jen Wilkin has been on the show, which is one of my favorite Bible teachers. Nancy Guthrie is also one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers, Max Licato, and then Crystal Evans-Hurst. And so there have been several people on the show, but like you said, there are also so many impactful stories from people from all walks of life. If people are wanting to find out more about you, find out more about your podcast, where's the best place for them to go? graceenoughpodcast.com is where you can find out more about me, find out more about the show. If you're on social media, the place that I really enjoy hanging out is on Instagram. And so that is graceenoughpodcast underscore Amber. Amber, as I mentioned, we've only just really touched the surface of so many of those things that have happened throughout your life, but there's still a, a deepness and a richness, and I know that people will want to connect, so I will put links to your website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can get in touch with you. But I want to just say thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a joy to have you on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.